What do you what do you think about the stuff that I do outside of the teaching and the raising of kids? Uncalled for, confabulation, and anything else? What do I think about it? Yeah, I mean, like, um, do you approve? Well, frankly, I don't think it's up to me to approve or disapprove. Um, you know, I've always felt that uh, you guys, that that is to say you and your brothers, should do the things that, uh, that please you. Um, and, you, you know... This you is Confabulation. I'm Matt Goldberg. And this is my dad, for real, my dad. Uh, The tricky thing about talking to my dad is that he often says what he thinks I want to hear, uh, or at least what he thinks is the right answer. This is incredibly frustrating. Okay, but but what would you think if I were to say, uh, quit teaching and make confabulation my full-time job? I'd be terrified for <laughs> the financial prospects for my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren. Okay. Okay. Uh, you've never, you haven't been to a show. No. Uh, like, like, I mean, I mean, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you you need to come to my shows. Um, but what, what do you think about this whole storytelling thing? Uh, well, I'm really not sure what to think of it. Um, It's not something that's uh, that, that I've ever been exposed to, um, so I just I'm quite passive w- with it. In other words, I I wait for input. <laughs> <laughs> but why? What do you mean? Like, wh- why are you so passive? Why? Why haven't? It's been seven years I've been doing this show. Yeah. You have a clipping of me right over there in the kitchen. Yeah, but you haven't been to the show. Well, there's a number of reasons why I never made it to your shows originally. Uh, it's because your mom was too ill to go, and um, so we never went to your shows, and uh, I just never got used to the idea of attending them. We we always would go to uh, your improv performances, um, and I still would, um, and I think I still do. I was, it wasn't that long ago I was at one. Uh, I guess, you know, eventually, if, you, if I'm pushed or <laughs> you guys take me, I'll go. Okay, so uh, like, to be honest, one of the reasons I thought that maybe you were uncomfortable is because, I mean, the idea of true life stories, I mean, that, that can be a weird thing. I mean, I don't know if this is a surprise, but I mean, you, you have appeared in some of the stories that I've told. I have. And <laughs> as, as the villain? No, there are no villains. Life, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, there are. But, um, well, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Great that uh, I've been included. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The tone has changed dramatically. Yeah, you're, you know, in your the stories of your traumatic experiences of the past. But see, that's not what it's about. <laughs> well, could be, could be, it could be. I guess you'll have to come to some shows to find out. Sure. From No More Radio, welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Goldberg. Each week, we explore a true life story as shared by the person that lived it, recorded at one of our live shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. In today's episode, we're talking about parents, and we're also talking about the arts. I think it's been pretty well established that maintaining a career in the arts, along with a good relationship with one's parents, can be uh, tricky. 
And while it's pretty clear that my own father doesn't know how to talk about my work, uh, some parents can be even less polite. This week's story tackles this issue head on. Telia Neville is a writer, performer, photographer, and poet from Melbourne, Australia. She told the story in June of 2017 when our theme was On the Edge, stories from the outer limits and beyond. Here's Telia Neville. I'm 18 and I'm sitting on my bed in my parents' house having a conversation slash argument with my mother about my future. And it's not the first time we've had this argument because my mother not only doesn't approve of what I want to do with my life, doesn't even exist as a possibility in her worldview. She looks me dead in the eyes and she tells me, if you're not a success by the, as an actor by the time you turn 30, you need to give it up. And I'm sure she says plenty of things after this, but all I hear is white noise. And even though the sun is streaming through the windows, I just feel cold because for as long as I can remember, my burning ambition has been to be an actor. And now I know my mother is expecting me to fail. But I am very committed to this and I've already done some pretty weird things to prove it. For instance, uh, age nine, we moved to a large country town in the conservative Australian state of Queensland, and I surprised my parents by announcing that I would like to go to Sunday school. And the reason this is a surprise is because my family isn't religious at all. Uh, in fact, my mother only got baptized so she could get married in a church she liked the look of. <laughs> um, but I have heard that at Sunday school, they do a big performance at the end of every year, and my brand new primary school doesn't do plays. So, any port in a storm. <laughs> so, every Sunday for the year, I go and spend an hour reciting Bible verses and listening to stories I do not believe in. And at the end of the year, they reward me by dressing me in a homemade costume and a brand new pair of razzmatazz stockings to play a herald ecstatically proclaiming the coming of the Lord. <laughs> my part is non-speaking, and my trumpet is made out of toilet rolls. And I'm standing up on the altar in my underwear and a single layer of crepe paper held together with sticky tape. And I'm cold, and my costume is scratchy, and there is no backstage with a mirror with light bulbs all around it. But it feels glorious to me because I'm exactly where I want to be, on stage. Earlier that year I'd gone to see the movie Labyrinth in the cinemas and I had come out just overwhelmed with jealousy that Jennifer Connelly had got that part and I hadn't. <laughs> so if there is no doubt in my admittedly slightly deluded mind that I am going to be an actor and I'm going to be a success. Twelve years after the give it up conversation, I'm standing in the kitchen of my Melbourne share house making glue vine out of cheap, but not too cheap, red wine. <laughs> Surrounded by my friends, celebrating my 30th birthday. I've settled into the pattern of my life, which is dodgy share houses with dodgy slash crazy housemates, uh, casual jobs in the <coughs> customer service industry, and as many shows as I can cram into my time. My parents are by this stage cautiously supportive, having realised that 
there is no point in fighting this theatre scene because it's not going to do any good. They're worried that I will always struggle financially and if I'm being honest, so do I. My, my mother doesn't bring up the conversation anymore, but whenever the topic of conversation turns to theatre, I can kind of see it running through the back of her eyes. And now that I've reached this magic age, it just revolves on a loop in my head. I'm making my own theatre by this stage, and I've just won my first Fringe Award for this incredibly ambitious and completely financially unsustainable project <laughs> that we call Penny Machinations. It is a penny arcade of private viewing performances that cost a dollar each. The audience loves it. The tent is held together with garden stakes and duct tape, and due to the high time investment versus uh, low cost, uh, we don't even see the break-even point, let alone come anywhere near it. But it's glorious to me. And for the time being, the success of this show and the award that we've just won is enough to convince me that maybe I'm making the right choice. A year later, I'm visiting my parents for the holidays and experiencing something else that has become part of the pattern of my life, which is my annual Christmas crisis. If you have never had one, they involve collapsing into an exhausting, exhausted, sobbing, inarticulate heap and having an existential crisis about what am I doing with my life and why can't I just be normal and maybe I should give it up, but what would my life be if I did? And this one is a doozy of a crisis because my father, who is an army man born and raised, has finally given voice to his opinion that artists shouldn't be able to receive government funding while they make their art. They should just work like everybody else. Uh, my father has no respect for this thing that I've ploughed my time and my money and all of my energy into. And I want to support myself because that's the way I was raised. But I've also learnt that artists that rely on government support go much further, much faster than artists who support themselves. And I know this for a fact because I've just watched my ex-boyfriend do exactly that. And this conflict inside me between the life that I was taught to live and the life that I'm so desperate to achieve just bubbles over and I just crack. And I come to, on their kitchen floor, staring at the fluff underneath the refrigerator. And the panic is starting to die down, but the worry and the doubt are just pushing their way to the front of my brain. I mean, what the hell am I doing with my life? Am I still going to be 50 and wearing name tags at work and living in awful share houses? Am I still going to be making completely financially unsustainable pieces that have forgotten the day after they close? What the hell am I doing? It's March of this year, and I am performing my brand new epic poem, Poet vs. Pageant, at the Castlemaine State Festival in regional Victoria. It's a 45 minute spoken word piece about an awkward outsider doing a beauty pageant, and they are paying me to do it. So it feels like a success in and of itself. I'm supposed to do it twice in one day at the local senior citizen centre and I have to perform on the floor because the stage is full of junk and my only light is held onto its stand with a zip tie uh, and I have to get changed in the bathroom again. 
but it feels glorious to me. My mother doesn't really see my shows anymore, uh, but she's decided to come all the way down to see the matinee for this one. And it just terrifies me because I, I think I'm still trying to convince her that this is the right choice because if she believes it, then maybe all of my doubt will go away. It's absolutely crucial to me that she enjoys this. And we go to a cafe after the show and we don't talk on the walk between the venue and the cafe. Uh, my mother is about half a foot shorter than me and her once brilliant red hair has long since faded to grey, so she dyes it. And she is unfailingly polite to strangers and brutally honest with her immediate family. <laughs> she has never had any problems calling a spade a spade. And my whole body is tensed, waiting to hear what she thinks. And I'm bracing for it. And she opens her mouth, she takes their breath, and she loves it. And she's proud of me. And she thinks the show is a success. And I'm sure she says plenty of things after that. But all I hear is white noise. Only this time I feel warm. I had the chance to catch up with Telia at last summer's Montreal Fringe Festival. You were so uh, keyed up before the show. How do you feel now? Um, I, I feel really grateful that I got given the opportunity and it's finally popped one of those fear bubbles because I've had a fear bubble for live storytelling for a really long time. So I think it kind of popped that, which was great. Hmm. Um, so about storytelling, I'm feeling sort of more relaxed, uh, but still, uh, yeah, more relaxed. <laughs> how, how is the process different than the process of poetry, of your, of your other writing? Uh, so the poetry is fiction, which means I can steer it any way I like and invent whatever I want to. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but it, it, always, it never really felt like I had any stories to tell. What's your process like with poetry? How does it come to you? I mean, you're going with fiction, as you say. Where do these, I don't want to ask you, where do your ideas come from, but how do your ideas develop? Um, when you're sitting on the tram and you're staring out the window, mm. uh, when you're standing in the shower and you're staring at the tiles, mm. like usually in a time when your brain is kind of um, a bit blank, mm. you'll get a couple of things or you'll get a title or, um, or you'll be watching somebody else's piece and it'll be so great that your brain will start firing like a pinball machine. Um, so mostly it's sort of when you're thinking about anything else, mm. anything but what you're actually writing about. Your story has a lot to do with success in the arts, which is the weirdest concept <laughs> in the world. We're here at the Fringe, which celebrates the possibility of everyone being successful and creating whatever it is they're looking to do. But, but what is a successful show for you? I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, success is a really... It's a really big word and it's a really loaded word. And for performers, it's really hard to gauge when it kicks in. 
because are you gauging it on whether you've been on TV? Are you gauging it on whether you're getting paid to do what you do? Are you gauging it on audience response? Are you gauging it on critical response? Like, you just don't know. And so it's a constant question. How is your dad, uh, how does he feel about the work that you're doing now? Has, has that relationship changed? Honestly, I don't know. He hasn't seen a piece that I've done since I was in university. Uh, so that's almost 20 years now. Oh, my gosh. Um, he's, he's a military man. He's uh, very focused and um, I love him, but quite socially incapable, which we share. Uh, but he's not really attuned to anything along those lines mm. at all. Um, I think he used to find the stuff that I did very weird uh, and it's only gotten weirder since then. So uh, we don't really talk about it. We never actually talk about the pieces that I'm doing. He never brings it up. You mentioned that your own feelings about the importance of being self-sustaining as an artist, that that, that comes from him in some way. Are there other elements of him that you see in the work that you do or in your perception and attitude towards art and performance? Um, I'm very anal retentive about uh, punctuality and <laughs> preparation and um, I, I'm not a fly-by-the-seat-in-my-pants kind of girl uh, and I think that comes directly from him. He's very much about preparation and research and making sure that everything is ready to go. Um, aside from that, no, not much. <laughs> Celia Neville is based in Australia, but I'm really hoping she'll be back in Montreal soon. You can follow her on Twitter at PoetLaureateTN. We'll also link to her website on the post for this episode. What do your parents think about what you're doing? They are not impressed. (laughs) They are kind of, they're always concerned. They're always worried. They're really proud because I'm entrepreneurial pursuing my art. My dad always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So it's actually strengthened the relationship with me and my dad. My mom mostly thinks it's a a beautiful waste of time. (laughs) Uh, She's like, hey, so long as you're not asking me for money, we're doing just fine. Mom says that dad says it's fine. That's how they usually respond. Mum talks for dad. Dad's been to two shows ever in his life. My parents love what I'm doing, actually. (laughs) They're my number one biggest fan. My dad actually always says, you know, people ask him all the time because my sister's a performer too. And people all the time are kind of like, oh, that sucks that both of your kids are artists. And he's like, no, my kids have known what they wanted to do since they were young. And that's the best gift you can have. Well, my dad um, is an artist, so I grew up seeing him engaging in all these different art forms. He's a painter, a musician, poet, writer, so art wasn't a foreign thing to me. It was just something that you do. And so I was always also engaging in art of various forms when I was growing up. I, I remember even at a young age, everyone, they always pronounce what they will want to be when they grow up, and I was only six, but I already knew I wanted to be an artist. What kind of artist? I didn't know, but I knew that that's what I wanted to be. And so my parents, because they were hippies, and that's often 
a disclaimer I, I, I give because it, it really does color um, an environment. So they, they didn't, it's not that they didn't care what I did, but they didn't have any like preconceived ideas of what I should do. It was, it was basically like we all just did whatever we wanted. And if we didn't like math and, and if we did poorly in math, it didn't seem to bother them. And if, when I decided I wanted to go into music, that didn't seem to bother them either, even though a lot of parents, they would be quite disturbed to hear their parents going and to hear their children decide to, to pursue art as a living because naturally they want their kids to be stable financially and independent. But also I think growing up in a hippie um, environment, you're used to poverty because hippies, they don't, they don't like money. They, they have a strange relationship with money. They don't have a lot of money. And so growing up, with not a lot of money, I, already had, I had already faced that reality. And so it doesn't, it doesn't scare me. And so that reality of going into the arts and struggling financially, that doesn't intimidate me at all. Bring it on, because <laughs> like, I can live on so little. That last voice was Nisha Coleman. Nisha is a producer of Confabulation, and she's the author of Busker, Stories from the Streets of Paris. We've talked a lot about parents and their feelings about the arts, but this all stems from one central concern, right? I mean, can you even make a living as an artist? I spoke with Montreal author Guillaume Morissette to get his take on this question. Succeeding today is also closely tied to failure. For me, I feel like I find as much value and meaning into my failures than I find in my success. There's something strange in regards to what's going on right now where it feels like compared to what it was like to be an artist prior to, you know, being in the internet age is that everything is much more quantified now. So you have kind of like, you can actually have like statistics about like how you're doing <laughs> as an artist. But I don't know if that's helpful or not because like ultimately the best statistic is still how much money is your, in your bank account. Like that's the statistics that really matter. The rest is just tangential. I was at a party recently. I can't specify who, but it was a family-related party. And uh, someone I'd never met before actually laughed when I said I was an actor. <laughs> like that we still have the world. Uh, but no, there, there is this sense of shame about our unpaid art selves, or in the artistic community, our paid. I, I'm a teacher. I should acknowledge that at some point, um, despite my aspirations of storytelling paying all the bills. Um, does that does that shape our, our art, do you find, the, the way that we talk about our professional lives? Or even, I should say, the, this whole gig economy, the fact that you have to be 16 different things in order to make a living. Yeah, totally. I mean, to me, it's always a thing where everything that I do, I find that it's just like, everything that I do and I don't do ends up affecting my art in some form. If I read a book in particular, um, and I draw like lessons from that book, it'll end up sort of uh, reflecting into my art at some point in some form. Um, but it, this is the same with like, you know, um, since I draw from real life quite a bit to write, then it'll be like, you know, going to a bad job interview because, you know, I need money for this thing. And it's just this like absurd job in like this weird office. And all of a sudden, like I can feel myself sort of dissociating in real time and being kind of like, I could probably use this in like material for a novel. But in a weird way, like my way of making meaning out of it was just to kind of like use those experiences and then flip them back by making something that I felt was like positive and meaningful and life affirming. Guillaume's latest novel is The Original Face. You can find that and his first book, New Tab, in stores and online.
That's it for Confabulation this week. We'll be back soon with another true life story. If you want to find out more about our live shows, you can check out our website, confabulation.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at Confab Stories. Please follow us, like us, and above all, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever podcast app you love. We're dedicated to bringing you incredible stories, and reviews really help us to continue to do that. Thanks so much to all our guest voices this week. That's Victoria LaBerge, Adam Ryder, Thea Fitzjames, Megan Phillips, Kia Sophia Borst, Shane Adamzak, Holly Greco, Gina Granter, Erica Bridgman, David Knoll, Al LaFrance, and John Bennett. We couldn't fit all of you into this week's episode, but we're grateful to you for your stories. Thanks also to Nisha Coleman and Guillaume Morissette. They're both published authors with books you definitely need to check out. Confabulation is a podcast on No More Radio. It's hosted by me, Matt Goldberg, and produced and edited by Paula Flalo. You can check out all our other great podcasts at nomoradio.com. Recording this week was done in Montreal with help from Lee Kinch-Pedrosa. Our theme song is Can't Have You by Bent by Elephants. You can find more of their music on iTunes or on Bandcamp at bentbyelephantsband.bandcamp.com. Additional music by Heirloom. They're at heirloomband.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. Owen, can you say confabulation? Okay, Ella's turn first. Ready? This is confabulation. I think that was your best one. One last time. This is confabulation. One more time.